Scientifica Radio. Here is Brit with me. So for the first 10 minutes of the show, we will go with uh, Mark Zicoli from University of Virginia, and he will explain us his study of the populating of the Americas through Beringia, but not with archaeology or genetics, but with linguistic. So what, what I'm contributing to that is to, to think about Uh, about the the languages of uh, of Alaska, and and to look at patterns of migration that we can tell from these uh, from these languages, and as well as patterns of language contact. So, what languages were in contact with each other, in which we can understand that multilingualism in the past left uh, traces of these practices um, in the languages we've documented. Um, by doing that, we've been able to identify that there were um, more languages spoken on the coast in the past than we see today that these are uh, extinct languages that we don't, uh, we don't know from, uh, from the historic period, um, but that we see traces of um, in some of the languages that we did document in the historic period. So with linguistics, the big, some of the big problems are, the, uh, in, at least in contributing to this, this session, which really looks at the terminal Pleistocene, so the end of the Ice Age and the early, um, the early populations in Beringia, this, uh, this area that is now... Um, underwater but was above water and was ecologically sustainable during the last the glacial maximum during the last ice age there's uh, very little archaeological evidence for this um, although um, some recent finds actually do uh, do show evidence of, of people in uh, Beringia in eastern Alaska and in um, the Yukon in Canada as, as long ago as 22,000 years ago so right in the in the time of the last glacial maximum, So to get back there with languages, it's difficult because languages don't preserve vocabulary um, for that long. So by 9,000 years, related languages have completely replaced their vocabulary. Um, and so you can't use vocabulary to, uh, to, to get to these, this type of deep history. And so one of the things that I've been doing with my colleagues is using um, typological data So non-vocabulary data, looking at morphological systems, so the parts of words and the different functions that they code for. So, for example, whether languages code different, different types of possession. You can have things that you can possess that you can um, trade or sell, um, you know, your you know, house, your tools, or something like that, versus things that are part of you, like your body parts, like arms. Like some languages, like English, doesn't code a difference between that. But other languages do, and you'll actually have a different um, a different marker at the end of the word or at the beginning of the word that shows that you're this is a different category of thing. And also, we'll look at um, we'll look at sound systems, and we'll look at the um, things that are marked on the verb, and um, and looking at a lot of these, right? So our our database has uh, 116 of these features. We've started to get some traction on some questions that we haven't been able to answer um, with vocabulary. And so one of those is on the, the dispersal of, of the Diné language family in North America. So, the, so Diné languages are spoken in Alaska and in Canada um, along the Pacific coast of the United States and also in the U.S. Southwest. Um, in the U.S. Southwest, we have um, uh, Navajo and Apache Uh, for instance, and in Canada we have the uh, the Athabascan languages, and spoken up into the up into Alaska and on the Alaska coast we have languages like Tlingit and Eyak. These languages have been really hard to classify on the basis of vocabulary. There seems to have been a lot of contact within the family and marriage exchange, 
um, the borrowing of words, and so it's unclear. You know, the best classifications have been things like, oh, Northwest Canada or Central Alaska or something, which are not really, you know, family, subfamily relationships, but are just regional relationships. And so using typological data, though, we've been able to see several groups. So, um, so the Apache and Navajo group stand out very clearly as a group and also includes the, um, the language Tsutina Athabascan up in Canada, which it looks like was... Um, yeah, relative that, that, that we can posit that there was a, a adaptation to the Plains culture in Canada um, before there were migrations into the U.S. Southwest and, and uh, diversified into what we see as Apache and Navajo today. That's one of the later phases of migration. Using these typological features, we've done network analysis using computer modeling, and these data cluster into several patterns. So we've been able to show that there are, are two clusters um, that when we, when we plot them geographically, they reveal two linear patterns that run between Alaska um, and Canada, and they look like chains of migration. So there's one from uh, northern Alaska that runs uh, east along the Brooks Range, um, around the Mackenzie Mountains, and then back to the Alaska coast. It's kind of a horseshoe-shaped uh, and there's another one which runs uh, straight from central Alaska to the southeast um, and down to the, the Sutina, Dene, Sutline uh, region uh, where, the, um, where you start to get to the central plains uh, area uh, in Canada there. The one is on the, the south side of the, of the Brooks Range and then around the east side of the Mackenzie Mountains and, and back. So they're not going through the mountains but maybe in the foothills of these mountains. And uh, the same, we see very similar pattern with the, the chain running to the southeast. So we see two, um, two groupings uh, with very clear branching. And so using typological features, we can posit um, relationships that have been hard to, um, or impossible to really posit on the basis of the, the vocabulary. Yeah, so we are, um, we are comparing these. And there are, for that um, horseshoe-shaped uh, chain, there's also been uh, independent archaeological claim for such a, a feature uh, uh, that shows that this was um, something that didn't go straight but actually went into Canada and then came back towards the Alaskan coast. It also, We've also been able to show that there are um, several secondary migrations that run between the interior of Canada and the interior of Alaska to the Alaskan coast. One of those is with the language um, Tsetsot, which is an, uh, an Athabascan language spoken on the Alaskan coast. This language actually, that, that word Tsetsot is from the language uh, Chimshin, uh, which is a, another language on the coast, and it means something like people from the interior. There's folklore and in the naming of this, uh, this ethnic group um, that relates them to an interior population that somehow came to the coast. And so we, we, um, there's also evidence like this for the language uh, Denina, um, which is a northern Athabascan language, but it, is, um, it looks like coastal languages in several ways. And so this raised the question that if we're able to show that out of this interior distribution of Athabascan, there were secondary migrations to the coast, uh, it raised the question for us of whether um, those people moving to the coast came into contact with um, languages that, that had been distributed along the coast through prior migrations. And so we, you know, we modeled the Alaskan coast uh, using our computational methods, and a number of unrelated languages along the coast patterned together in the uh, in the networks. So, um, so languages like Haida, which is a linguistic isolate, uh, Tsetsot, Tlingit, 
EAC and Denino, which are all um, Athabascan languages or, or Dene languages, let's say, uh, and then also um, Aleut, so Eastern Aleut um, fits, falls within this group. And so within the network, it looks like there's a language contact signature along the coast there. And so we've took a closer look at all of those languages using um, language uh, documentation from the archives, uh, dictionaries, grammars, and, and such. And what we see is that um, these languages, um, East Aleut, Denina, um, and EAC, for instance, all show what look like mixed systems. So we have um, some vocabulary is related to other languages that they're related to, like patterns in EAC, for instance, but only a very small portion of their vocabulary actually relates to other Athabascan languages, for instance. Um, and then about 75% of the vocabulary is from an unknown source. With um, Aleut, for instance, uh, we see that there are part of the, part of the features are related to Eskimoan, this uh, sister family, and a whole number of them are from some unknown language that can't really be um, sourced. Um, and we see this with Iak, we see this with Denina, and we see this with, um, with Eastern Aleut. So it means that there were um, uh, languages that um, Eastern Aleut, Denina, and Iak were in contact with um, that are no longer spoken on the coast there, but they've left traces from multilingual practices. Um, in a sense, it's like an archaeological trace, or it's very similar to, I guess, the notion of admixture in genetics, where you'll find uh, evidence for um, biological mixing uh, because certain alleles that are characteristic of one population are found in another. And here in the linguistics, we see things like grammar, parts of vocabulary systems, and um, morphemes that, that don't fit with the rest of the family but seem to have some consistency in themselves. We just had to throw away months, years of work and just delete. Nothing really ever seems to work. Oh, let's just start again. You're going down all these roads and they, they never go anywhere. Banging your head against one problem. Every day you feel stupid. Most of the things we do don't work. Well, I mean, if it was easy, like someone would have done it before. Because you ask yourself questions you don't have answers for. Or you don't get your paper published in, in the journal that you want it to be published in, or you don't get the job that you want. And it, it is hard to decide when you, you haven't gotten what you wanted, um, that you aren't just a total failure. Welcome to Scientifica Radio. I'm Evelyn, and in the next 30 minutes I want to bring you closer to a subject nobody really wants or even likes to talk about on science. Failing. Every scientist probably has come to this point, maybe even more than once, in which he or she is excited about a new idea, a new hypothesis, a new possible breakthrough that will potentially lead to the Nobel Prize or, well, at least to graduation. But then, after running the experiments over and over again, tweaking and changing the setup, the highly anticipated results show up differently, or they do not show up at all. The scientist has negative results, the idea gets thrown away, and the scientist has failed, at least in the eyes of the current scientific community. 
failure is an existential part of science and uh, that a lot of research is not result research and these two facts are often not acknowledged, in, at least not in public. It is said that the pressure put on scientists to publish distorts science and hinders the scientific progress. Success or failure is currently measured by the amount of published papers in a certain period of time. The more papers published, the better. However, this creates a problem, namely a bias towards publication with positive results, which affects the body of scientific knowledge by bending it towards statistically positive results. While the results of failing experiments never see the light of day. This publication bias is explained in the following by Professor Stephen Goodman from Stanford School of Medicine. Publication bias is anything that affects uh, whether studies that lean one way or lean, lean another way actually get into the published literature. And this is really critical because the only science that we know about is the science that gets published. So if somebody does a study and for some reason it sits in their computer, in the file drawer, wherever, and it's never put in the published literature, for all practical purposes, it doesn't exist. And its evidence and the, and the contribution that the subjects or people who participated in that research, that contribution is for naught. But our concern, aside from that, is that it distorts the picture you get in the medical literature. So if... Um, Studies that showed that a particular product or intervention didn't work, preferentially or not there, our opinions will be biased towards the, the uh, conclusion that it does work, when perhaps it doesn't. Um, so that's what publication bias is. It's any, any forces, any influence. Um, and sometimes it's, it, it, it comes from the investigator themselves. It's, they find that the study is not very interesting for a variety of reasons, or they don't think that it can be published in a particularly good journal. Um, and we find that the vast majority of studies that are not published are not published because the investigator simply hasn't uh, prepared it for publication. But to the extent that this distorts the evidence base, that's what publication bias is. Scientific journals overwhelmingly publish studies that report positive findings and they ignore negative results. As even a member of the staff of Elsevier, the world's largest publisher, acknowledged, the bias is excessive and widespread across disciplines. In a 2014 study of social sciences, for example, researchers at Stanford University found that only 20% of negative studies were published. Indeed, two-thirds never made it into manuscript form. Meanwhile, 60% of studies that turned up positive results were published, according to the researchers. It's not, uh, it's not easy to publish negative results, because you send it to the journal, to the editors, and you get it uh, rejected, normally. But is this bias towards positive results really a problem? Negative results aren't really important, right? Yes, it is important, and no, negative results are very important. Let me show you one of many examples. An important story which shows how important failure is, 
is the discovery of the G-proteins, a family of enzymes. G-proteins were found by eventually realizing that the dishwasher soap used on the experimental glassware was adding trace amounts of aluminium, and that this was a crucial cofactor in the G-proteins activation. No one would have suspected such a thing, and it caused years of frustrating failures of many experiments, but it finally led to one of the most important discoveries in pharmacology. And a Nobel Prize. This is only one of hundreds, if not thousands, of such stories, big and small, about productive failures that led to an otherwise unconsidered finding. A recent project at Haverford College has realized the potential benefit of negative results and is focusing on failed chemical reactions, or how they call it, dark reactions. These dark reactions offer valuable information about the bounds on reaction conditions needed for compound formation, but unfortunately they have always just languished in lab notebooks helping only the scientists who record them. Until now. The team of Haverford College researchers used those unpublished dark reactions to create a machine learning algorithm that is able to predict reaction successes or failures with greater accuracy than human intuition. As detailed in a cover story in Nature, the Haverford scientists have demonstrated both the value of wider dissemination of unsuccessful synthesis and the possibility of using machine learning to arrive at potential synthetic compounds faster than traditional means. Okay, I think it's better if one of the researchers of the team explains what they actually did. Now, if you were to read the scientific literature, you would be forgiven for believing that all chemists get all of their reactions right first time, every time. Teensy little bit inaccurate. In fact, what really happens is that for every reaction slash experiment that gets published in the scientific literature, there are normally hundreds and hundreds which just don't work. Now, don't work covers like a large gamut of things. That can include stuff that literally generates no discernible product. It can include things where nothing happens at all. It could include things that don't generate the product the person is aiming for, or it could generate a product which it is right, but is not new and therefore can't really be published in scientific literature, which demands novelty. Even when we do publish those reactions that do work, we don't actually necessarily include enough detail to replicate the results. And often we are publishing in a format which is maybe human readable, but is not discernible to machines. So why do we care? Well, reason number one is, if we've got all this unpublished information, that is stuff that we don't know that we know. So we have people who are doing the same experiments over and over again because that information hasn't been shared, that somebody's already tried it. But more than that, it becomes very difficult to discern trends in chemical behaviour when you've only got about 10% of the data. Because in order to know what things make a reaction work, you need to know what circumstances cause a reaction to not work. But even if we could share that data, I mean, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of reactions. So how do you analyze that much data? You can't do it by hand. And the data and problems are complicated enough that you're not going to be able to do it just by making graphs like we do with normal small sets of data. And so 
What happened at Haverford College is that Josh Shreer, Alex Norquist and Sorel Friedler, who are all the principal investigators on the project I'm working on, got together and said let's do something about this. And so we took 10 years worth of data from Alex Norquist's lab group and put it in a database. This data included all of our reactions, those which worked and those which don't work, with a measure of how successful the reactions were. And our measure of success, just for simplicity's sake, was whether or not we formed an ionic crystalline compound. And then we built a machine learning model where we provide the data chopped up specifically to a computer so that it can ingest it and learn, if you like, what makes the reactions work. And then we use that model to make predictions about the chemistry we're looking at. Computer learned model consistently outperformed human predictions. Now a lot of people get hung up on this and this isn't actually the success story. All this tells us is that there was something in the machine model that the human derived models don't yet know about. Now the kind of model we built for our machine learning model is called a support vector machine and the technical details are incredibly hairy but the short version is that it's very good at predicting what's important about very complicated sets of data. The problem is, is it's actually really difficult to get it to tell us what those important factors are. So what we did was we took the predictions from our machine for the old data that we had and applied it under a different machine learning model called a J48 decision tree, quite friendly to use. From this decision tree we're able to generate hypotheses about what the factors which drive our reactions and make them work are. So we're not only able to make new predictions about our chemistry but we're actually able to understand why those predictions work. And the importance of this really cannot be overstated. It's changing the way we're thinking about doing chemical synthesis and changing the way we think about even publishing our data and what data is important to publish. This is really cool and I'm so excited to be working on this project. In general, failing in science should not be considered to be something bad. Failure is not backsliding in science. The opposite is actually the case. Failure moves things forward, as surely success does. We need to learn to fail better, to look beyond the obvious, beyond what you know, beyond what you know how to do. Failing better happens when we ask questions, when we doubt results, when we immerse ourselves in uncertainty. Publishing more negative results may advance science since researchers, our colleagues, wouldn't waste time doing experiments that had already proven to be unsuccessful, as also Dr. Natalie Madison from the University of Wollongong, Sydney, Australia points out. Negative results, after all, are still results, and once they're in the literature, they will help other researchers avoid experimental avenues that have already proven to be dead end. Just to be able also to publish negative results, I think it's important because uh, if you can't publish that, uh, other groups are not going to try the same, uh, the same stuff, so they don't waste the time just testing something that doesn't work. After all, we should not forget that science is, by nature, a collaborative discipline. So knowing how important failure in science is, how can we as a scientific community start embracing negative results? How can we encourage scientists to be more willing to fail and to tell the world about it? One of the most important steps is to make sure that negative results see the light of day. 
The publishing industry is in a position to change this academic culture and publication bias. In recent years, publishers and journals have been encouraging more submission of negative results. One of these new projects is, for example, Junk, the Journal of Unsolved Questions, where the importance of all kinds of results is highly acknowledged, as some of the members explain. We founded the Journal of Unsolved Questions, Junk, in July 2010. It originated from a think tank workshop of the Graduate School of Material Science in Mainz. And he continues with... So a piece of research which seems to be a null-result research to you may be fruitful to someone else because he applies other criteria because he has another point of view. And this is the meaning of our motto, just dig through the junk to find the hidden treasures. We work in a team, in an international team, uh, with uh, PhD students from all over Europe. We have, for example, somebody from Prague working with us. We have somebody from Kiev working with us. So we meet up with them virtually via Skype <laughs> and uh, discuss uh, new contributions. We discuss strategies to making junk more popular, more well-known, and uh, we discuss our website. Um, we also have a feature on our, our website called uh, Questions of the Week, which are written by the editorial board. And also we discuss uh, how we could make the public more aware of problems that, uh, that we have in science with publication practices. Junk is not the only journal trying to fight against the current publication bias. The all-result journals focuses on recovering and publishing negative results, valuable pieces of information in science. These experiments are considered a vital key for the development of science and the catalysis for a real science-based empirical knowledge. Now, especially since the World Health Organization announced its position on publishing the results of clinical trials, including negative findings, Projects like old trials have been gaining more and more interest. Old trials' simple goal is that every medical trial gets re registered and published to build a research database. This should actually be norm, but however, is currently not the case. As the following trial participant was also surprised to find out. When I saw the doctor who gave me the diagnosis, I wanted to hear anything but the word cancer, but that didn't happen. When, a couple of days later, my doctor raised the possibility of a clinical trial, there wasn't really much of a decision I felt that I had to make. I genuinely wanted some good to come out of my situation, no matter what was going to happen to me. To find out that not all clinical trials were being published is just horrifying. It's an insult to me and to everyone else who volunteers to do these trials. The initiators of all trials go on to explain the relevance of publishing medical trials. Doctors have unintentionally wasted huge amounts of money on treatments which either are less effective than we thought or were unnecessarily expensive, and we've exposed patients to harm by giving them the less effective of the currently available treatments, simply because clinical trial results have been withheld from us. The best currently available evidence shows that on average the chances of a completed trial being published are roughly 
and trials with positive, flattering results are about twice as likely to be published as trials with negative results. The vast majority of medicines we use every day came on the market a decade or more ago. It's these trials where half of them haven't published results, so for the medicines we use every day, information is missing. And even companies are now seeing the benefits of being more transparent. Hundreds of organisations who have joined the campaign, including research funders, companies and academic institutes, have started serious discussions about all they can do to achieve more transparency. Terms like trust and transparency haven't been closely associated with the industry. And at GSK we've realised there's more we can do to be more open and transparent about the research we conduct. And if independent researchers can come along and provide a fresh perspective on the research we've done, that's great for science, it's great for us, and most importantly, it's going to improve patient care. Clinical trials aren't just done on drugs. They're done on psychiatric treatments, medical devices, surgical techniques, and veterinary science. Anybody who funds and runs clinical trials should sign up to the campaign. Yes, it's worrying about what you might find. Everybody has skeletons in their cupboards. But now is the time for more companies and more institutes to make a commitment. We know that withholding the results of clinical trials costs lives wastes money, inflicts avoidable suffering and harm on patients. And so I don't think it's any longer tenable to say, we didn't know. Science needs a cultural shift. Failure has to become more acceptable in research. So next time you have negative results in the lab, don't feel ashamed, don't be angry, try to share them. Because in the end, Sharing is caring, not only about your own project, but caring about the advancement of science in general. And don't forget, we like to share as well. We will be posting all the information about all different projects on our Facebook page. This was Scientifica Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Evelyn and have a nice weekend.